Hi everyone, welcome to episode 16 of Gather Round, the podcast series sharing stories from Aberdeen Archives, Gallery and Museums. In this episode, Martin Hall, archivist for Aberdeen City and Shire, talks about the epidemic response in medieval Aberdeen to the known and unknown diseases, including the plague, between 1498 and 1549. On the 17th of May 1498, the whole population of Aberdeen were gathered at the castle gate by a premonition or sound of the bell because of what was referred to as a strange sickness. This may have been Scotland's earliest recorded lockdown. Please be aware that this episode contains sensitive material that listeners may find discomforting. Hello, my name is Martin. I'm one of the archivists at Aberdeen City and Aberdeenshire Archives. So between the end of the 15th century and the middle of the 16th, Aberdeen weathered the disruptions and trauma familiar to most medieval towns in Scotland, where war, poor harvests, violence, trade disputes, bad weather and plague. Plague could hit a medieval world incredibly hard and Aberdeen had to develop measures to protect itself against no fewer than five instances of epidemic disease, both known and unknown, between 1498 and 1549. The town itself was small by today's standards, a warren of narrow streets and tall buildings that were held back on one side by the links and hemmed in on the other by the Denburn. Unique factors in the town's layout, its open gates, lack of walls, position as the primary harbour in northeast Scotland, would make any attempt to resist the spread of an epidemic much harder. What we'll look at today are how the five epidemics that reached Aberdeen were dealt with in the 50 years between 1498 and 1549, and how the city's methods of responding to public health crises developed over that time. On the 17th of May 1498, the whole population of Aberdeen was gathered at the castle gate by a premonition or sound of the bell to be affirmed in their statutes and ordinances which were designed to affect and protect the town from what they refer to as the strange sickness and pestilence. Aberdeen's oldest rules to prevent the spread of disease centre on restrictions of movement both into and through the town. The announcement of statutes against the pestilence in 1498 may be the beginning of Scotland's earliest recorded lockdown. To make the town safe against disease, the port leading from Castlegate to Fitty was always shut. The northern part of the gate leading to, next to the garden wall of Robert Blinsell was allowed to be kept open during daylight hours, provided that it was shut, locked and guarded each night by Blinsell himself. The inhabitants of each of Aberdeen's four quarters, the Crooked, the Even, Fitty and Green, took responsibility for one of the town's four gates. The idea was to make sure each gate was kept policed, so that nobody bearing any disease could get into the city. Even if the gates were locked and guarded day and night, however, this measure would have been insufficient. Aberdeen was not a walled city. The gates are formal checkpoints for merchants and tradesfolk coming to a market. Um, They would do nothing to stop anyone who wanted to get into Aberdeen from simply walking down a different street or from crossing over someone's garden wall. Little remains to attest to the virulence of the 1498 pestilence or to what extent it reached Aberdeen. It had little effect on the city's trade or on collection of rent, which were the chief concerns of the town's ruling merchant class. Beyond their interest, we can only really guess at the effects it had on the rest of the city. Mercifully, there were no other warnings of disease abroad in the city's vicinity until April of 1514. In 1514, the town's hinterland was a place where the violent and contagious sword of pestilence rings, and the possibility of disease entering the city from the towns to the south or from the shire boroughs nearby was a very real one, and one with which the council were forced to contend, although... At the time, it was the fourth most important issue on their agenda. 
after they had made decisions about how many chandeliers of brass to hang in the nave of St Nicholas Kirk, how much gold they should use to decorate the altar, and how much tax they should put on the vessels coming in from Flanders to pay for church renovations, they decided to deal with the Sword of Contagion, which is the only name that they ever apply to this threatened epidemic. Firstly, inhabitants of Aberdeen were forbidden from harbouring or sheltering anyone coming to town from any place where the disease was known to spread or any stranger coming from an unknown place. Failure to adhere to this would result in banishment from Aberdeen for a year and a day. In addition, the laws on shutting up gates were expanded and refined. Only Schoolhill, Gallowgate and Castlegate ports were allowed to be opened at all. All streets in the outer town were to be shut up and barricaded until the council was satisfied the epidemic had passed. Of the three open gates, they were to be staffed at all hours of day and night by two men specifically required to be armed and strong to form the new gate watch. The duties of the watch were to bar entry to Aberdeen to any incomers or lurdanes, an old Scots word meaning miscreant. Failure to keep strangers out of the city would net the gate watch a fine of eight shillings per intruder. As a final precaution, each bailey in the quarter of the city could assemble and deputise any individuals they trusted to hunt down and exile anyone they suspected of harbouring strangers. They were also responsible for the edict forcing property owners to barricade their back gates and shut up their streets. So satisfied with these precautions, the city then set up a night watch at the Bell House beyond the waters to watch the sea and rouse the inhabitants of Aberdeen in the event of a threatened invasion by the English. Very stressful days but the threat of plague passed and remained that way for a quarter of a century. The autumn of 1539 saw the first time a clearly named and identified plague came to Aberdeen. Rather than just a sickness or the contagion, it was specifically called the Boish. The words possibly a variant spelling of the French word bouche and is one of the earliest terms used to categorise the bubonic plague. The differences between the town's precautions against the sort of contagion and against the Boish were due chiefly to immediacy. By the time the Boish was found, it was already within the town's precincts. 1514's measures to keep the disease at a distance would have achieved nothing. Despite the immediate peril of the Boish, the town's measures against it were very narrow in their focus. They charged the Baileys to go through their quarters and search for any poor person, beggar, or inhabitant or stranger they judged to be idle. Those not native to Aberdeen had 48 hours to leave town. If they did not, they were burned on the cheek with a hot iron and exiled by force. Native inhabitants were forbidden from dealing with strangers. They could neither permit them into the town nor offer them shelter or hospitality. If they did so, they would be banished for a year and a day. Despite the immediacy and danger of the boys, the only statutes we have recorded are those enacted to drive out the poorest and most vulnerable inhabitants of Aberdeen alongside anyone who sheltered or aided them. In Michaelmas of 1545, we see the return of an epidemic to Aberdeen, and this threat of public health was the first business addressed by a newly elected council. By the time they were able to deal with the issue, the pestilence was already seen in the town, and the first measures taken were directives to support those affected by the disease. The Dean of Guild was given silver to hand out to those who were either marked as victims or who lived in an area of borough where cases of the disease had been recorded and were thus unable to leave their house. Subsequently, the town's four gates were decreed to be the only way in or out of Aberdeen. They were only open during the hours of daylight, watched over at all times by a stout inhabitant of the borough, it was this guard's discretion whether they let in anyone who presented themselves at the gates with the caveat that they were not in to allow anyone in who bore a sign of infection. If anyone suffering the pestilence made it past them, they were liable to fines and punishment. This allowed the gate watch a little more leeway than its previous incarnation, but made the boundaries a little more fragile. In addition, a six-man squad was organised to patrol the city each night, 
enforcing a curfew designed to prevent people from moving and drinking together, exacerbating the spread of the disease. Anyone refusing to join the watch or the guard was fined, and was also required to pay the wages of whoever was recruited in their place. By the next spring, when plague was thought to be dying down, an incident reported in the house of Alexander Scott, a local merchant. Plague was suspected, hidden in his house and kept secret because it affected a member of his family. Every item in his house was taken out into the street, purged and cleaned. His house was likewise cleansed. His nephew was stripped naked in public and inspected for signs of plague by the town's officers. The women of the house were banished to the links, which by the mid-16th century had replaced Fitty as a place of isolation for anyone suffering from a dangerous illness. The woman found under the stairs, as she is described, was required to remain inside Scott's house with Scott himself. If she tried to escape from the house, Alexander Scott was to be burned on the cheek with a hot iron. In the summer of 1546, with the town's financial resources heavily committed to the siege of St Andrew's Castle, following the murder of Cardinal Beaton, harsh measures were enacted against the resurgent plague. It is uncertain whether this is another wave of the 1545 epidemic, or a different disease brought in and transmitted through unknown means. The approach taken by the town draws heavily on past experience while also taking a new and disturbing direction. In early August, it was stated that any beggar or idle person in Aberdeen was given 24 hours to leave the borough. If found after that period had elapsed, they were branded on the cheek with a hot iron, a favourite method of disfiguring people to aid in later identification. Where this differs from previous methods of driving the poor out of the town to stop them from spreading diseases and its later consequences. If anyone with a brand on their cheek is caught in town, they are to be killed by either hanging or by being drowned. The measure of drowning to prevent the spread of plague didn't apply only to those beggars or unemployed poor people in Aberdeen. Anyone, whether they were an inhabitant or a burgess of guild who was caught sheltering a beggar, a stranger or a vagrant, would share in their punishment to be put to death. Strangers who came into the town could also be executed without recourse or appeal. Ships were forbidden from tying up in the harbour or approaching the town. Sailors were thought to spread this sickness and forbidding sea trade no matter how much it hurt the city's purse would keep Aberdeen a little safer. Any inhabitant of Fitty or the borough proper who approached a ship anchored off the coast to offer them food or trade would be punished. A burgess would lose their freedoms, an unfree resident would be branded on the cheek and exiled. If anyone disputed the terms of their punishment, the guidance was brutally clear. They would share the fate of those who were judged unworthy of the city's protection and join them on the bottom of the harbour. Within a month, every street in Aberdeen was closed and barred. Every port, every gate, every bridge left open was watched by a continually rolling guard detachment of two men, drawn by lots from the city's whole population. Visitors were forbidden from any suspicious place, a list which included Edinburgh, Dundee and Leith. Any ships making their way to Aberdeen were seized and confiscated, as were goods belonging to travelling merchants visiting the city. The seizure of goods is an indicator that objects were not considered a vector of contagion, despite the cleaning of Alexander Scott's possessions a few months prior to these events. Harsh, brutal measures to restrict the spread of plague were unsuccessful. By October, the council's actions against the plague had shifted to mitigation. Facilities for containing and treating those stricken were seemed to be in operation on the links, although they do not seem to be under the council's control. As the town was still paying money to avoid sending men to besiege St Andrews, the majority of the money given to feed and house plague victims was paid out of alms given to St Nicholas Church, with the remainder made up from money gathered from the town's rents. Throughout 1546, the council found itself repeatedly stating that trade with strangers arriving via ship was forbidden. The repeated outlining of punishments for doing so, loss of freedoms, exile, death, during October implies that the town's mercantile class were unwilling to cease trade despite the risks. 
Foreign trade persisted despite the prohibitions and brought a plague to the highest echelons of the city's society. David Spilialocht, a merchant, had his hand branded and scorched for failing to inform the council that his son had contracted the plague and for hiding his son and his sickness within the house rather than directing that he be taken to the links. The final instance of epidemic in our period in the spring of 1549 saw a city that was prepared to deal as effectively as possible with contagion soared. Anyone discovering a case of disease had six hours to report it to the town's officers. Failure to do so resulted in immediate branding, banishment and confiscation of all worldly goods. No words on the offender's defence could be heard. Through was broad, brutal, applied to every level of the town society and was intended to frighten the population into prompt compliance. The idea that plague had spread from person to person in proximity had taken hold. Anyone seen talking to sick people on the links was immediately required to join them. If anyone died in any house, young or old, rich or poor, the entire household was removed and confined to the links. Dogs were stuck in their owners' homes. Pigs were to be slaughtered and used for the sustenance of those on the links. In the winter of 1549, the Kishas Council issued licences to inhabitants of Aberdeen that allowed them to return from travel to their homes in the city, provided they quarantined themselves for a set period agreed on by the council, usually between 8 and 14 days. The method of licensed quarantine seems to have had a precedent in earlier plague years, but the minutes and council records of 1549 are our first real evidence that the policy was acted on. Over 50 years and half a dozen outbreaks, we see a city's response sharpened from poster guard on ceremonial gates and hope no one arrives by walking in via another street to licensed and monitored quarantine, socially care and relief, thorough and adequately policed lockdowns and brutally draconian brandings, drownings and exiles. We see a city that is not necessarily aware of how a disease spreads, how it works, how to fight it or even frequently but not always what it is, but which is determined to go to the lengths necessary to keep its people safe from it except for the ones it kills because they're poor. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gather Round. Remember to hit that subscribe button to never miss an episode. Until next time, bye!